0: This is a Reconstruction radio production. Please visit garynorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is The Great Tribulation by David Chilton. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1987 by Dominion Press. The Great Tribulation. Chapter 2 Coming on the Clouds. We have seen that Christ's discourse on the Mount of Olives, recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, deals with the end, not of the world, but of Jerusalem and the Temple. It has exclusive reference to the last days of the Old Covenant era. Jesus clearly spoke of his own contemporaries when he said that this generation would see all these things. The Great Tribulation took place during the terrible time of suffering, warfare, famine, and mass murder leading up to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. What appears to pose a problem for this interpretation, however, is what Jesus says next. But immediately after the Tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all of the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Matthew 24, 29-31 Jesus seems to be saying that the Second Coming will occur immediately after the Tribulation. Did the Second Coming occur in AD 70? Have we missed it? First, let us be clear about one thing at the outset. There is just no getting around that word, immediately. It means, immediately. Acknowledging that the tribulation took place during the then living generation, we must also face the clear teaching of Scripture, that whatever Jesus is talking about in these verses happened immediately afterward. In other words, these verses describe what is to take place at the end of the tribulation, what forms its climax. In order to understand the meaning of Jesus' expressions in this passage, we need to understand the Old Testament much more than most people do today. Jesus was speaking to an audience that was in, initi- intimately familiar with the most obscure details of Old Testament literature. They had heard the Old Testament read and expounded countless times throughout their lives, and had memorized lengthy passages. Biblical imagery and forms of expression had formed their culture, environment, and vocabulary from earliest infancy, and this had been true for generations. The fact is that when Jesus spoke to his disciples about the fall of Jerusalem, he used prophetic vocabulary. There was a language of prophecy, instantly recognizable to those familiar with the Old Testament. As Jesus foretold the complete end of the Old Covenant system, which was, in a sense, the end of a whole world, He spoke of it, as any of the prophets would have, in the stirring language of covenantal judgment. We will consider each element in the prophecy, seeing how its previous use in the Old Testament prophets determined its meaning in the context of Jesus' discourse on the fall of Jerusalem. Remember that our, our ultimate standard of truth is the Bible, and the Bible alone. The sun, moon, and stars. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus said, The universe will collapse, the light of the sun and the moon will be extinguished, the stars will fall, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The basis for this symbolism is in Genesis one 14 through 14-16, where the sun, moon, and stars, the powers of the heavens, are spoken of as signs which govern the world. Later in Scripture, these heavenly lights are used to speak of earthly authorities and governors, and when God threatens to come against them in judgment, the same collapsing universe terminology is used to describe it. Prophesying the fall of Babylon to the Medes in 539 B.C., Isaiah wrote, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their consolations will not flash forth with their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 13, 9-10 Significantly, Isaiah later prophesied the fall of Edom in terms of de-creation. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree, Isaiah 34, 4. Isaiah's contemporary, the prophet Amos, foretold the doom of Samaria, 722 BC, in much the same way. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Amos 8.9 Another example is from the prophet Ezekiel, who predicted the destruction of Egypt. God said this through Ezekiel. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8 It must be stressed that none of these events literally took place. God did not intend anyone to place a literalist construction on these statements. Poetically, however, all these things did happen. As far as these wicked nations were concerned, the lights went out. This is simply figurative language, which would not surprise us at all if we were more familiar with the Bible and appreciative of its literacy, literary character. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, therefore, in prophetic terminology immediately recognizable by his disciples, is that the light of Israel is going to be extinguished. The covenant nation will cease to exist. When the tribulation is over, old Israel will be gone. THE SIGN OF THE SON OF MAN Most modern translations of Matthew 24.30 read something like this, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. That is a mistranslation, based not on the Greek text, but on the translator's own misguided assumptions about the subject of this passage, thinking it is speaking about the second coming. A word-for-word rendering from the Greek actually reads, And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. As you can see, two important differences come to light in the correct translation. First, the location spoken of is heaven, not just the sky. Second, it is not the sign which is in heaven, but the Son of Man who is in heaven. The point is simply that this great judgment upon Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, will be the sign that Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven at the Father's right hand, ruling over the nations and bringing vengeance upon His enemies. The divinely ordained cataclysm of AD 70 revealed that Christ had taken the kingdom from Israel and given it to the church. The desolation of the old temple was the final sign that God had deserted it, and was now dwelling in a new temple, the Church. These were all aspects of the first advent of Christ, crucial parts of the work he came to accomplish by his death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne. This is why the Bible speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Church, and the destruction of Israel as being the same event, for they were intimately connected theologically. The prophet Joel foretold both the day of Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem in one breath. And it will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and I will display wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood fire, and pillars of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord had said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Joel two twenty-eight 28-31 as we will see in a later chapter, St. Peter's inspired interpretation of this text in Acts 2 determines the fact that Joel is speaking of the period from the initial outpouring of the Spirit to the destruction of Jerusalem, from Pentecost to Holocaust. It is enough for us to note here that the same language of judgment is used in this passage. The common dime-store interpretation that the pillars of smoke are mushroom clouds from nuclear explosions is a radical twisting of the text and a complete misunderstanding of biblical prophetic language. It would make just as much sense to say that the pillar of fire and smoke during the Exodus was the result of an atomic blast. The clouds of heaven. That appropriately brings us to the next element in Jesus' prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. And then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The word tribes here has primary reference to the tribes of the land of Israel. And the mourning is probably meant in two senses. First, They would mourn in sorrow over their suffering and the loss of their land. Second, they would ultimately mourn in repentance for their sins when they are converted from their apostasy. See Romans 11. But how is it that they would see Christ coming on the clouds? This is an important symbol of God's power and glory used throughout the Bible. For example, Think of the pillar of fire and cloud through which God saved the Israelites and destroyed their enemies in the deliverance from Egypt. See Exodus 13:21 through 22, 14:19 through 31, 19:16 through 19. In fact, all through the Old Testament, God was coming on clouds in salvation of His people and destruction of His enemies. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Psalm 104.3 When Isaiah prophesied of God's judgment on Egypt, he wrote, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Isaiah 19.1 The prophet Nahum spoke similarly of God's destruction of Nineveh. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Nahum 1, three. God's coming on the clouds of heaven is an almost commonplace scriptural symbol for his presence, judgment, and salvation. More than this, however, is the fact that Jesus is referring to a specific event connected with the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Old Covenant. He spoke of it again at his trial, when the the high priest asked him if he was the Christ, and Jesus replied, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Mark 14.62 See following Matthew 26.64 Obviously, Jesus was not referring to an event thousands of years in the future. He was speaking of something that his contemporaries, this generation, would see in their lifetime. The Bible tells us exactly when Jesus came with the clouds of heaven. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight, Acts 1.9. So then... After the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Mark sixteen nineteen. It was this event, the ascension to the right hand of God, which Daniel foresaw. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel seven, thirteen 13-14. The destruction of Jerusalem was a sign that the Son of Man, the second Adam, was in heaven, ruling over the world and disposing it for his own purposes. At his ascension, he had come on the clouds of heaven to receive the kingdom from his Father. The destruction of Jerusalem was the revelation of this fact. In Matthew 24, therefore, Jesus was not prophesying that he would literally come on the clouds in AD 70. Although it was figuratively true, his literal coming on the clouds in fulfillment of Daniel 7, took place in A.D. 30, at the beginning of the terminal generation. But in A.D. 70, the tribes of Israel would see the destruction of the nation as the result of his having ascended to the throne of heaven to receive his kingdom. The gathering of the elect. Finally, Jesus announced the result of Jerusalem's destruction will be Christ's sending forth of his angels to gather the elect. Isn't this the rapture? No. The word angels simply means messengers. See following James 2.25. Regardless of whether their origin is heavenly or earthly, it is the context which determines whether these are heavenly creatures being spoken of. The word often means preachers of the gospel, See Matthew 11.10, Luke 7.24, 9.52, Revelation 1-3. In context, there is every reason to assume that Jesus is speaking of the worldwide evangelism and conversion of the nations which will follow upon the destruction of Israel. Christ's use of the word gather is significant in this regard. The word literally is a verb meaning to synagogue. The meaning is that with the destruction of the temple and of the old covenant system, the Lord sends out his messengers to gather his elect people into his new synagogue. Jesus is actually quoting from Moses, who had promised, If your outcasts are at the ends of heaven, from there the Lord your God will synagogue you, and from there he will take you. Deuteronomy thirty four, Septuagint. Neither text has anything to do with the rapture. Both are concerned with the restoration and establishment of God's house, the organized congregation of his covenant people. This becomes even more pointed when we remember what Jesus had just said before this discourse. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to synagogue your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Matthew 23, 37-38 Because Jerusalem apostatized and refused to be synagogued under Christ, her temple would be destroyed, and a new synagogue and temple would be formed, the Church. The new temple was created, of course, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came to indwell the Church. But the fact of the new temple's existence would only be made obvious when the scaffolding of the old temple and the old covenant system was taken away. The Christian congregations immediately began calling themselves Synagogues, that is the word used in James two two, while calling the Jewish gatherings synagogues of Satan, Revelation two nine, three nine. Yet they lived in anticipation of the day of judgment upon Jerusalem and the old temple, when the church would be revealed as the true temple and synagogue of God. Because the old covenant system was obsolete and ready to disappear, Hebrews eight. 13. The writer to the Hebrews urged them to have hope, not forsaking the synagogue of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10.25. 2 Thessalonians 2.1-2. The Old Testament promised that God would synagogue His people undergoes one major change in the New Testament, Instead of the simple form of the word, the term used by Jesus has the Greek preposition epi prefixed to it. This is a favorite New Covenant expression, which intensifies the original word. What Jesus is saying, therefore, is that the destruction of the temple in AD 70 will reveal him as having come with clouds to receive his kingdom, and it will display his church before the world as the full, the true, the super synagogue. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice Or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.